The last few weeks we've been kind of reading through Psalm 119 and I'm going to invite Audrey forwards. Is she? There she is. Okay, great. Come forwards. Audrey should be reading verses 17 through 24 this morning for us. Thank you. morning. Psalm chapter 119, verses 17 to 24. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Thank you. Thank you, Audrey. It was wonderful. Well, now we will dismiss the little ones that are here that parents may desire to be downstairs for the children's program we have, uh, our Young Lions program parents, if you... Want your kids to be a part of that? We invite you to do that. If not, that's okay too. Either way is good with us. And the rest of us will remain up here and we'll turn to the Lord in confession. Uh, again, as we go through Psalm 119, if you're like me, you hear those words and you think, yeah, maybe on my, my best days I'm doing some of that. Uh, probably most days I'm not. I say, am I really and truly delighting in God's commandments? Am I really and truly keeping them? Are his testimonies my delight? Are they my counselors? And very often I think they're not in my case. So let's turn to God in confession together and repentance and be reminded of the good news of the gospel, God's forgiveness. Our parts, we'll read that first part together in the bold. Um, Let's say it now. Almighty God, who does freely pardon all who repent and turn to him, now fulfill in every contrite heart the promise of redeeming grace, forgiving all our sins and cleansing us from an evil conscience through the perfect sacrifice of Christ Jesus, our Lord, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. And as we confess our sins to God, acknowledge that we fall short, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to extend to us His grace. As it says in Zephaniah 3, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Only because of what Jesus has done can that be true 
of you and I, us sinners. He is a gracious God. Let's continue in prayer together and lift our burdens and our concerns to God now. Bow your heads, if you will, with me. Oh, Lord, as we come to you in prayer, we are reminded that only by Jesus can we come into your presence. Only because you have shown us kindness. You have been so merciful, so forgiving, that the likes of us can come into your presence through and in the name of Jesus. And so we do that this morning. We come knowing that it, you, you do not invite us in reluctantly or begrudgingly. You are a God who, as we just read and heard out of your word in Zephaniah there, you love us. You rejoice over us. You long for us to be with you and in your presence. You exalt over us. You sing over us. God, what an image. So we come. We come not to one who is sighing or grieving again as we come back into your presence with all of our problems and troubles. No, you are eager that we would come. So eager that you would send Jesus to make a way that we could come. Oh, Lord, that we would avail ourselves of of that way and, and come often and repeatedly, moment by moment even, that we would be communing with you. Not just on Sunday morning when the pastor says, bow your heads and let's pray. That we would, day by day, be coming into your presence to be reminded that you are rejoicing over us, that you love us, that you sing over your people. Oh God, how we need that kind of news in a world of troubles, in a world of bad news. You give us good news. And we rejoice in that this morning. So Lord, we come. And we come giving thanks. We come Grateful after the many joys and blessings that we all have and enjoy, even those of us who may uh, have want or even need from time to time, we still look around and all we can say is glory to God. You are so good. Or even when we fall short, even when we turn from you and reject your ways, you are still kind to us and good. You allow the rain to fall upon the righteous and the unrighteous. And all we can say is, thank you, God. So we come in that spirit this this morning, thankful, grateful for all you are doing and have done for us. Lord, we pray this morning when we are in those moments of, 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 
maybe lacking gratitude or in those moments where we're um, complaining and, and, and bothered and frustrated and upset, Lord, that you would give us the grace that our eyes would be opened and our ears open to see and hear all the many good things you are doing and have done in our lives. God, give us that grace that we might see. Open our eyes, Lord, and let us be proactive. Let us be working to be people who look for the good. We know your word says that whatever is good, whatever is honorable, whatever is pleasant and right and and of God, think on those things, those excellent things, those good things. Let us be like that. And Lord, we know that even as we pray that and seek that and long for that, Lord, there are many troubles. And life is often difficult, very difficult. Even as I pray, I've got a throbbing headache up here. Life is filled with pain and frustration and broken hearts and broken dreams and and evil. Life is difficult. So we come to say thank you. But also, Lord, just to with our trembling hands as we seek to walk through this life that is often so hard, we want to lay before you our burdens, our losses, our griefs, our sorrows, our troubles. Lord, our some things that maybe are even the consequences of our own actions. We, we lay before you and say, God help us. Show up in our mess. We know you love to do that. You came into this messy world. That people like us here would have hope. Would have help. Would have grace in time of need. So we come. Lord, I pray for those here that have lost loved ones. I, as I scanned the room just a few moments ago, Lord, there are many who have even just recently lost loved ones. We especially lift them before you right now. Oh God, be close. Be that good, good Father. We know you are. Be present. We know you listen, we know you care, you're compassionate, be tender. But also remind them of the truths that we hold dear. That we grieve, but not as the world grieves. Because we we grieve with hope that there is a resurrection. That there is life on the other side. And that death is merely a passing through. Lord, let that fill our hearts with hope. Even in the face of death. Pray that for all those that are grieving. And Lord, we want to take a moment and the burdens are many and the, and the troubles are many. I want to take a moment and just silently now in your seats where you are, lift your burdens before the Lord. Take a moment. Folks online, do that as well. If you're at home, pause now. Lift your burden to God silently where you are.
Lord, the <clears throat> silence is such a gift. It's not always easy to sit in the silence. But you are there. It is often there that we most clearly hear your voice. So thank you for those moments. Thank you for a space where we can come and be quiet before you, even if just for a few moments. Pray we would seek the silence regularly. Even those of us with small kids that find that very hard, help us, Lord, to be diligent, maybe in rising early, finding that quiet place to be with you. Lord, um, all these burdens that we've just prayed, and even those unspoken burdens, Lord, those things deep within, that maybe you're the only one in all the world that knows of our pain, that knows of our struggle, of our insecurity, our doubt. Lord, meet us in that place. We lift that thing to you that trouble, that grief, to you now. You're the one who sees all and knows all. And we thank you that you do. All this we ask, all these things we lift to you and we pray in the name of the one who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. Now we'll turn to God's Word. And this morning we're going to be in a couple of different places, um, relatively close together, in John 1 and John 3. And maybe as the message goes along, you'll sort of understand why I've arranged it that way. Um, This passage is going to talk about someone uh, named John the Baptist. And that will be a familiar name to many of you, maybe a new one to others, and that's okay. Um, We'll talk a little bit about John and some things as we go through the message here. But I'm going to invite uh, my wife, Megan Forrest, to read. Thank you. Good morning. So I always, I'm like, do I read from the Word? Do I read? I'm always like, Bible, paper. Anyway, long story. I digress. All right. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you saying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Aenon near Salem, um, Salem, sorry, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There is one verse that I come to maybe more than any other. It's that last one. That he may increase, he must increase, I must decrease. Probably because that's such a struggle for me. Anyway. Well, some of my favorite passages in the Bible were written by a guy named Paul. I'm sure some of you love Paul too. Paul's one of these controversial figures. You either love him or you hate him. And Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament books. Almost half by number of the New Testament books. He's the one who wrote unforgettable phrases like to live is Christ And to die is gain. Again, moved along by the Holy Spirit, of course. God working in and through him as he wrote these things. But he wrote, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor height, nor depth, or any other thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's Paul, right? Paul wrote, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, right? 
He wrote, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He wrote, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Christ's power is perfected in my weakness. He wrote that famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians. Love is patient. Love is kind. These are the words of Paul. Many others we could talk about here. Paul loved Jesus and gave his life in service to Jesus. He writes in the book of Acts or says in the book of Acts, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's heartbeat was to tell others about the grace of God in Christ. There was perhaps nothing more important to Paul than that, that God would be glorified in him through his ministry. He wanted the world to know Jesus. Well, if you read any reliable Christian scholar who knows a thing or two about the Bible, about history, they will tell you that Paul is probably the most important person after Jesus in the history of Christianity. Almost without debate. Paul was massively influential. Yet Paul would have likely been a footnote in history were it not for another guy named Barnabas. You see, Paul was once a guy named Saul. And actually, I don't think his name was ever changed. I think those were, he was, both of these names were used. I think Paul was his Roman name. Saul was his Hebrew name. Anyway, there's some debate about that. But Paul, for, for ease of, of uh, thought here, was once Saul, okay? And Saul was not always friendly towards the church. In fact, Saul persecuted the church, threw them in jail, stood by while They were even killed and stoned to death. It would be fair to say that Saul hated the Christians. He thought they were dishonoring God. And the best way he could honor God was by stamping out their movement. That is until one day while on the road to round up some more Christians on his way to get some of them, Jesus appeared and that changed everything for Saul. He had an encounter with Jesus. Soon, Saul was preaching about Jesus to others. But the disciples thought this was some kind of trick. We're not so sure about this new Saul, Paul. In fact, they didn't even think he was a true believer. If you were to read in Acts chapter 9, verse uh, verse 26, 27, that area there, there's a moment when a guy named Barnabas brings... Saul, Paul, to the to the disciples. And it says this in verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas brought Paul to the apostles and said, you need to hear this guy, what God's doing in him. Eventually, the disciples accepted Saul 
And the rest is history. That Saul, again Paul, went on to change the world for Christ and become this massively influential man of God. But we don't read much about Barnabas. You don't hear a lot about the guy who made the connection. Just a story here or there. But Paul is all over the place. Barnabas was willing to be in the shadows. He was willing to be second place. Willing to make the connection and step back. You know, it takes some doing to do that. It's not easy to be second place. In our world today, which is all about me, 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 which I said last week, remember we talked about how we're a a culture of narcissists and we all are kind of self-focused and love to think about ourselves and most of our life we kind of center on ourselves. Today, it takes some doing to be content, to be second place, does it not? To be willing to let the other person, the others get the praise or the credit or the attention, whatever. But praise God for Barnabas. Paul was a gift to the church. And Barnabas saw that possibility, made the connections and got out of the way. And today, millions and millions of people worship at the foot of Christ because of God's work through the Apostle Paul. Well, in our passage this morning, out of John 1 and John 3, we read about another guy who was content to let someone else have the attention. John the Baptist. John, like Barnabas, wanted people to know Jesus more than anything, and God used them mightily to that end. What can we learn from their stories to help us be used of God? Are there some things we can see here, highlight, think about as we seek to be used of God? I know most of you out there today, and I know that a great many of you desire for God to use you. You don't want to waste your life. You want to be used of God. Maybe that's your greatest desire. You desire your life to count for Christ. Well, today I want to give you a few simple points from the life of John the Baptist to help you to that end. Jesus said of John, he was the greatest of all the prophets, yet the least of you will do even greater things, he said. But John was a mighty man of God. God used him. What can we learn from these couple little passages here before us today to help us be used of God? That's what I want to talk about this morning, okay? The first point is this. We'll just jump right in here. Point number one. If you want to be used by God, you must get to know Jesus Christ. Get to know Jesus. This is um, a lot of what the men talked about. We're kind of wrestling with this morning at men's group. Maybe this stands to reason or common sense. That if you're going to serve Christ, then the first and most important thing you can do is to know him. Maybe that's obvious, but it's absolutely foundational. There's nothing more important than getting to know Jesus, period. Let alone if you want to serve God in some way. 
Get to know him. But how do I get to know Jesus? Maybe there's someone out there asking that question. How do I know Jesus? Well, just like John got to know Jesus. And how did John get to know him, you ask? Well, John knew Jesus primarily, believe it or not, by reading his Bible. No, John didn't have a pocket Bible in his you know, coat that he walked around with like we do today, no. But John would have learned the Bible like most Jewish boys. He'd have went to school and been taught the Bible, which at that time, of course, for them was what we now call the Old Testament. He would have heard it read over and over and would have memorized key portions. Wait a minute. Our Bibles tell us about Jesus and this thing called the New Testament. John didn't have the New Testament. How did John get to know Jesus without a New Testament? Well, the Old Testament talked about Jesus, too. Didn't use that name, of course. And we last week saw some examples, right, of how they're. God has put all these symbols and prophecies and things in the Old Testament to help people understand who this coming person, this figure, this deliverer was going to be when he came. John knew from his study and listening, being a, a young Jewish boy, being taught in school and in synagogue and listening maybe to the rabbis, he knew what the coming Messiah the promised deliverer would be like, what he would look like. Not physically, but what would be the case when he showed up. In other words, John knew Jesus before he knew Jesus. He knew the coming one before he knew the coming one was Jesus. Look with me, if you will, verses 29 through 34, and I hope we'll kind of see that here in this little section The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can imagine John probably shouting this. I won't do it here for the sake of our ears. This is he of whom it is said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is a strange paragraph, honestly, Just being real here, because when Jesus comes walking up, John says, there he is. There's the son of God. There's the lamb, the one who takes away sin of the world. There's the guy we've been waiting for. Yet in the same breath, he says, I myself did not know him. But I came for this purpose to reveal him. How do you put those together? How can you point him out when he's walking up on the beach and yet not know him? How can you be sent to reveal him and not know him? I think what John is saying here is not that he didn't know Jesus at all. I mean, they were related. We're not exactly sure what their familial connection was, but they were related in some way. He simply 
is saying here. He did not know until very recently that Jesus was that guy that he'd been reading about and thinking about and studying about for so long. That coming one, the Messiah, the one who was going to save the world. But when John saw the things that he knew from the Old Testament that were going to characterize the coming one, this deliverer, the rescuer, when he saw those things being fulfilled in Jesus, he began to declare it to the world. At this point in the story, John has baptized Jesus at some point prior to this moment. And at that baptism, which you can read about in your copy of God's word, the spirit descends and it remains on Jesus. When John is baptizing him there, it doesn't come as it would for a moment up to that point in time. If you read the Old Testament, the spirit would come upon people for a moment and depart when they had accomplished the thing for which the spirit came to, for them to do. And then it would depart. But this spirit, this Holy Spirit came and remained upon Christ and stayed on him. This is the one when John saw that. He knew this was the one whom Isaiah said would be like a lamb that would be killed for our sins. This is the one who would be filled with the spirit of God and baptize people with the spirit. There he is. That's the one. John was able to be used by God because he knew Jesus. He knew him. He knew what the coming Messiah was going to be like. And I want to challenge you as well. If you want to be of service in the kingdom as John was, get to know Jesus. To know him. The best way to do that is to get in your Bible. Be a student of God's word. Come to church. Sit under the teaching of God's word. Spend devoted time in prayer. Talk to God. Seek Him. Ask Him to reveal Himself to you. Get to know the Lord in this way. How do you get to know your good friends? You spend time with them. You talk to them. You think about them. Right? And so it is with God. If you are not in your Bible, not talking to God, not in church, it's going to be hard to know Him. And it's going to be hard to be useful in his service get to know jesus that's point number one okay that's what john did and john was massively useful in the kingdom of course we know john had a special calling and purpose but nonetheless he was used by god because he knew god okay get to know the lord point number two if you want to be used of god used by god you must get comfortable Talking about him with others. Talking about him with others. A couple of my kids recently started basketball. And before uh, one night, we were kind of getting ready for bed and doing what we do. And uh, one of them was telling me that their shoulders and arms were hurting. And they're like, something wrong with me? You know how you're... Mind can wonder, what's going on? I've never felt these feelings before. What's happening? Shoulders, arms were hurting. Soreness in their feet. We talked about it and eventually it dawned on us. It's probably from shooting and passing and running around. Right? Basketball. 
Most likely that's what these aches and pains are. You're doing some new things. So most likely these aches and pains are just going to be a part of life while you play basketball. Right? It comes with the territory. If you want to be, if you want to play, want to be on a team, you're going to be sore. Okay? Likewise, if you're going to know and serve Jesus, you will be called upon to speak of him to others. I mean, they're very rare exception, right, of folks that are mute and can't talk, okay? But we're going to be called upon to speak of Christ. There's a significant, this is a significant part of what it means to follow him. Look at verses 35 through 37 here. And again, keeping in mind, I know John had a special calling. We're not all John the Baptist. We're not all called to go out, you know, behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, right? So there's some nuance here. But again, general principles we're picking up from the life of John. Look at verses 35 through 37. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. It's almost like John in this moment is recognizing my role was to make room for that guy. Right, I was the one called to kind of prepare people for this coming Messiah. He's here now. Go to him, right? Go, go. Like he, he's what it's all about, not me and my ministry. My ministry has been fulfilled. He's, he's arrived. But we find John once again repeating those words. Behold the Lamb of God. This is the second time here in just a couple paragraphs where John is speaking of Jesus. There he is. Others hear John and go and follow him. This is a snapshot of how the process of people coming to know Jesus works. It's just a snapshot of it here. These two people mentioned in verse 37 that heard John, um, you know, they were standing there with him. Some of John's followers or disciples, they hear John say, behold, the Lamb of God. They were his disciples and they, they hear him and they say, okay, we're going to go follow him now. John had gotten to know them well, built a relationship, invested time in these disciples and these friends. And he said, this is what it's been all about, guys. Go, there he is. Told them about Jesus and they went and followed Jesus. Again, that's an oversimplification, right? That's a very, if only, you know, we told people about Jesus and immediately they were like, okay, yeah, we'll go follow him. Um, It's an oversimplification, but this is what it will look like for me and you as well. Again, kind of a general picture. You love people, you serve people, you rejoice with them, you cry with them, you pray for them, you share about who Jesus is with them and what he's done with them. That's the process of being used by God to reach the world for Christ. None of these things are easy, but I would probably guess that for most of us, the hardest Of those pieces, we think about serving and loving people, getting to know people, building relationships with people, and sharing Jesus with people, with our words, not just our life. Of those things, for most of us, the hardest part is going to be talking. Using words to talk about Jesus, right? To to share Christ with us. It's probably going to be the hardest thing for most of us. Few of us may be quick to share um, and maybe loving and and serving is a little harder. 
And most of us, it's probably the sharing that's the hardest. But this is the chosen way that God uses to save others and bring people into relationship with himself. It's through a message. It's through words, through speech, a story, good news. And John summarizes that message when he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Maybe that's a curious phrase. Behold the Lamb of God. What is that about? Well, back then, unblemished lambs were offered up as a payment for sin. God made a way for people who had committed sin, which that time was, and today, all of us, right? God had made a way for people to be forgiven and pardoned for their wrongs through the shedding of blood, through a process of sacrifice. And it wasn't really paying for the sin because these are just animals. There's no intrinsic, ultimate worth there. Um, There's some value, but not enough to atone for sin, right? So it was a symbol. It was symbolic. And that idea is foreign to us today. We don't We don't do that today, right? Maybe we're more familiar with the concepts of payment or restitution. If you harm someone or their property, you have to make some kind of payment or fix what you've broken. That's a concept that today makes sense to us. You break the window, you go fix it, you pay for it, maybe you install it, whatever, you hire somebody, but you fix it. And that's what was happening at that time. These lambs would be slaughtered, The blood would pay for the sin, so to speak. Felicia, would you pull up that image for me really quick? Some of you have probably seen this diagram before. This is something I drew kind of quickly. I do this uh, and hope you can read my writing there. But um, basically what's going on here, this is called a bridge diagram. Maybe some of you have seen this before. Um, You've got, you know, two cliffs here. Right. And a massive chasm in the middle that represents the separation that we experience from God because of our sins. It's because of our sins. We can't be in fellowship with God. We've broken his law. He's holy. He's perfect. He's just. And he would actually be unrighteous if he were to embrace sinners. As it is. So he's created a way. That we could have fellowship with God. And these verses all tell, you know, this story here. Okay, so our sin has earned us death and that sin separates us from God. Only through some kind of payment or restitution can we be made right with God. A payment big enough to pay our debt. We've sinned against an infinite, perfect, holy God. So our payment must be infinite and perfect as well. So here we've, we've sinned, sin's penalty, the wages of sin is what that verse says, is death. How can we make a payment that would compensate for that? We, we cannot. The payment can only be made by God himself. God comes down, takes our payment, pays our debt himself in love by going to the cross. That's what this represents. It makes a bridge, hence bridge diagram. And by trusting in Christ and what he has done, we can, you know, cross the chasm, so to speak. 
through faith. Faith in Christ is what gets us across. Everyone who believes and trusts in Jesus is saved. Their debt is paid. Their guilt is washed away. This message is the chosen mechanism, the vehicle, the thing that saves people. And it has to be shared for people to be saved. It requires trust. You have to get on some level, at least. You don't have to be, part, you have to be a theologian, but you have to grasp that Christ has done something to save you from your, for your sins. Put your trust in that message, in the person of Christ. This is the life-saving message of the gospel. And we must learn to share it if we want to be used of God. As I wrap up this point, I'll give you a, a, a very brief story. A friend of mine who's a pastor was drawing this diagram for someone in a restaurant one time. And he had been praying for this person. He's having dinner with them. He'd really been burdened to share this with this person. And he's drawing it out on a napkin, and the person's uh-huh, uh-huh, listening along, being polite. And at the end, he had you know handed it to the person, hoping they would take it. And they were like, oh, well, thank you. And they kind of left it on the table like, you know, no thank you, basically. Um, well, they got up, he left his tip, and they finished their meal, and they went on their way. And after, um, as they were walking out of the restaurant, the waiter came up with the napkin and said, can I have this? I really need this. And so my pastor friend was like, I wasn't there for this other person. I was there for the for the waiter. I mean, how amazing, right? But again, that message is powerful and it saves. Get used to sharing it. It may not be for the person you're wanting to even share it with, perhaps. It may be for someone else, but you need to know this message. So that's point number two, right? Get used to sharing this message, this story with others if you want to be used by God. Point number three, if you want to be used by God, you must let this message also shape your life. So it's not just a message, right? We browbeat people with and preach at people and then ignore the rest of the time. It must shape our life as well. Okay. So now we'll look over the passage in John chapter three, starting in verse 22. I won't read the whole thing. I'm going to just kind of fly through it here after this jesus and his disciples went into the judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing so jesus is on the scene people are going to jesus now john is sort of fading into the backdrop and discussions are coming up about baptism and purification the purpose of baptism john what's the difference between your baptism and jesus's baptism and all that sort of stuff that's beginning to happen and they come to john and they say here in verse 26 He's baptizing. Everyone's going to him. Everyone's going to him. John answered. He must increase. I must decrease. I rejoice that he's here. Right. He says, therefore, my joy is now complete. Verse 29. That's the way it should be. John says instead of throwing a tantrum. Right. Which I'd probably be prone to do knowing my own sinful, selfish heart. John rejoices when he hears the news. They're not coming to you anymore, John. 
You know, they're going to the other guy. The guy down the street with a bigger ministry. They're going to him. John says, praise the Lord. John would have had a large ministry. There would have been a lot of people coming to him to be baptized by him. It was enough to where people from Jerusalem were being sent out to see what was going on with his ministry. It was that big of a deal. And now they're leaving and going to Jesus. All of his ministry and work is coming to an end. Everyone's going to Jesus. And instead of throwing a temper tantrum, he rejoices. John understands this is what it's all about. It was never about my ministry. It was never about my kingdom. It was never my message, John says. It was always about him. And what is more, John knows that eventually Jesus is going to be that lamb, right? He's going to die. He's going to give himself. He's going to die for sin. He knows that the creator, the perfect, blameless one, is going to lay down his life and everything for sinners. That's what Jesus came to do. He's going to turn the whole world upside down with this kind of self-sacrificing love. Because John understood these things. He was able to lay his life's work on the altar. He was able to let it go and give it up. John's life was shaped by the gospel by this good news, this self-sacrificing message that Jesus preached and embodied. And if we want to be used by God, we must allow this message, this way to shape everything about us also. Lay everything in the hands of Jesus, even your usefulness. So notice I phrased this Message, if you want to be used by God, X, Y, Z. Well, sometimes our desire to be used by God is a problem, right? We want that more than we want really to be faithful or really want God. We must even lay our usefulness down. Do you see? That's what John did here. It was so clear. John wasn't about his ministry, his work for God, his faithfulness. He was about Jesus. Am I? Let's ask ourselves the question. I'm asking it of myself. You ask it of yourself. Am I really doing the things that I do for the Lord? Or am I doing it for some other reason? The irony that we see here in the life of John is that the more we shine the light upon Christ, the more useful we actually become the more we're not front and center, the more it's of Him, the more we're going, behold Him, not me, the more useful we become. He is life. He is truth. He is love. He is hope. He is peace. He is everything good and right and beautiful. Let Christ increase. Let us decrease. Let us be nothing. Let Christ be everything. That is the path of usefulness. Christ. And let this be our great prayer this year as a church, right? That we would be behind Jesus. We would be like John, like Barnabas, willing to get out of the way and point, behold, there he is. That's the one the world needs.
not me. Amen. Let's pray as we transition now into song. Lord, we, uh, we hear you. We look at the life of John and the little bit that we glanced at Barnabas at the start. And we're humbled to the dust. Lord, we so often make life about ourselves. This is our default from day one. Our bent is self, not others, not you. Oh, Lord God, we need your indwelling spirit. Fill us, empower us, enable us to to be like these men. Only in your strength. Only, I think, I think by receiving and embracing the gospel for ourselves, believing it truly in our heart of hearts that you came, you did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You laid aside your divine prerogatives, as it were, and came down and dwelt among us and gave your life for sinners. Such love, such sacrifice. When we get that, believe that, embrace that, oh God, would we change, I pray. Would we be more like that? But only in you. This is our prayer for ourselves and for our church this year. In Jesus' name, amen.